In the circles that I run in, there is a lot of talk about death. And not just the end of life kind of death, although we talk about that too. We talk about the endings of our bodies on this earth. But we also talk about the death of culture, the death of ways of relating that are no longer working for us anymore, the death of old identities that are tied up in paradigms of progress and institution that actually suppress the essence of human beings. Not that all institutions are bad, I'm not saying that, but just sort of feeling into the tenor of that and feeling into what does want to change and evolve about the ways that we do that. We talk about the ways of being that we have, you know, adopted, we have sort of assimilated to, especially those of us who um, have been displaced or come from cultures that are more of the earth, right? We all technically come from cultures that were originally of the earth and so much changed, so much evolved, some for the good and some for the detriment of our humankind, right? And ironically, I find it so life-giving because as more and more people are shifting away from the concept or the idea, and I'm going to include myself in that, that this is, there's a we about this, we are shifting away from this concept or idea that something might be wrong and then sort of moving about our lives as though nothing can be changed and there's nothing that we can do. And now many of us are shifting into a more hand-in-the-soil style of investigating. We're shifting into a way of being with our questions, being with our instinct about how culture is panning out right now through what can I physically allow to evolve and change in my current reality now. And in this hands in the soil style of investigating in this sort of self-sovereign way of being with change and death, death, grief, and change begin to be a more present topic and conversation. And, and what I'm also finding in the circles that I weave in and run in is that many of us are relearning, have never learned how to hold that. And because we've never learned how to hold death and grief and change, what we do is we turn back to the institution and we begin to clinicalize these very normal human, albeit resurgent processes of holding the real life texture of the human experience in our hands and with each other, right? We're not just imagining a new world, right? We're not just praying that all the evil and all the bad will leave the earth and then all the bad politicians will go to hell and then all the good politicians will, we're not just, it's not just this like fantasy that many of us are cultivating in our minds about what wants to happen. But there is a true like surrendering of what needs to leave, what needs to change, what needs to evolve so that the soil of our culture the soil of my home, the soil bed of my heart can be restored and regenerated back to a life-giving nature, right? 
These are, this is, this is the work that we're doing together. This work of a static death that Alexis and I talk about in this episode. This is a global change process, meaning it's not just happening here at home. It's not just happening in solitude, but it is happening across the face of the earth. And the impact of this leaning in to the human experience, leaning into death, will expand beyond our lifetime. So this is not just work that, it's not just instant manifestation work that's going to get us what we want today and tomorrow. But there's a slow time evolution that's happening as we lean in and say yes to death and grief and change in the inevitable cycles of human nature. In my own lineage of learning, I have learned to see the work of restoring and restoring our grief as intercessory prayer work, right? So this is another thing that happens in culture when we talk about grief. And this is why people feel like they can't share their grief. I've definitely felt this. Is like when you say I'm grieving or I'm mourning, people think, oh, you're just sad. You're just feeling. And then what happens next is like next week they see you grieving again. They're like, man, why, why haven't you gotten over this? You need to be more regulated. You need to get a little bit more, you know, X, Y, and Z. That There's a prescription element of like a way of being with your grief that is more acceptable in society so that progress can continue to move. But what people don't know, right, for those of you, for you grievers out there, what people don't know is that grief is prayer and grief is intercessory work and grief is imagination work and grief is acceptance work. Grief is the work of holding change. It's not just sadness. It's complex abiding. It's recognizing that what I am feeling, the impact of what I have received from life is not only affecting me, but it's affecting the environment around me. And when we learn to work with grief, not as, you know, something that needs to be transformed immediately or turned into the shiny object and the shiny story that we can capitalize upon, but as a nutritive density for, for the soil of our culture, that our tears, the salt of our bodies feed the earth. When we can see that, that's when we start holding change as grievers, as weavers, right? This is, this is where the evolution, you know, the, the evolution takes place. Something is initiated when we lean in to this, right? I love... Adrienne Marie Brown's work um, in her book, Holding Change, which is a book about facilitation and mediation. It's, you know, in a facilitation, mediation, dualistic, these are arts of holding change. Like these are arts and practices of moving energy through and allowing new potentials to be born. And I subscribe to that way. I, I, I am fully devoted to that way of being. And she says, here in the text, she says, it is time for us to move towards ways of being that are focused on listening to each other deeply and accepting each other whole. We need to learn ways of being in space together that help us see beyond false constructs of superiority and inferiority without asking us to sacrifice what has shaped us. 
We need to study being receptive and non-judgmental with each other, letting the earth and community hold us until we remember we already belong. And I love that line too, because I love that line of like, everything that is moving through me belongs to the earth. Everything is rooted in the earth. Everything can go back to the earth. There's nothing that I am feeling or experiencing or moving through. There's no part of this process that is too ugly or too unkempt because death can often be those things. It's, it's, there's no part of this that doesn't belong, right? There's no part of the change process that is too unwielding. It all belongs, right? And there's, there's a sense of gathering of the spirit in that, right? There's courage in that. There's peacemaking and there's a mending that happens in that where we're not fracturing ourselves off. She continues to say, I believe that holding change can be sacred work. And I'll admit it, it is most satisfying to me when the sacred is palpable in the room. And I feel so humbled and receptive to this way of being with change, this way of being with grief, this way of being with our stories, our lives, our bodies. There's so much to learn from grief. And when we can allow ourselves to receive a story of grief that is about the, the nutritive, whole, uh, like beautiful, plump, um, and even like the desertified qualities, the emptiness of grief, right? There's all of this complexity to grief that is that goes beyond just sadness, right? That goes beyond just a reaction to life, but that is more of a living systems process of moving through change where many things are connected to others. It's wholeness. So there's so much to learn from this. And I feel like I'm learning so much every day about how to hold this. I mean, I'm holding these conversations, but I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm learning. There's so much to learn about how to hold the realities that are currently uh, fully unpeeling before us as we speak, while also holding space to the futures and the potentials that are ready to be brought forth. Because this is a huge part of grief work, which is that it's not just about what what happened and the blow and the pain of death and change and grief, but it's also about that feeling of potential and that feeling of evolution and the stories that that are wanting to be planted as seeds in the bedrock of our culture. Not even just like our larger cultures. Sometimes like we get to the larger culture with our grief and that can be a really beautiful offering, but even in our internal culture, right? our community culture. This work of restoring our grief rites, our rites of passage through grief, our sort of rituals of holding grief and death in our culture is deeply slow work. It's presence work. It's not something that we're just going to manifest tomorrow. And this is also the, the other piece that I think is so powerful that Alexis, our podcast guest today, really brings. I'm so thankful for this conversation about restoring our grief, restoring death, restoring the way that we hold these pieces of life. A little bit about Alexis Sabatino. She is the founder of a global women's movement. She heals collective. She's a healer, a mystic teacher, a storyteller, intuitive coach, rebirth midwife, and a rights facilitator. And she guides women all around the world through sacred rites of passage into wild 
soul embodiment. And I so deeply appreciate her work and how she has devoted her work and her community and her presence to the evolution of rewilding our womanhood, rewilding womankind, and really allowing us to create that space, you know, for what grief and death and change can look like in the culture by looking in inward toward how the body holds these things naturally. So in this episode, I really hope that you find some encouragement that, you know, if you've been looking for conversations like this, looking for circles where folks are talking about these things, that you can remember that there are people out there who are really seeing this this whole thing in, in, in ways that are nutritive and restorative and are not sort of fanciful, right? But that there are people in the world at the small and the large scale who are just doing the daily work of putting their hands in the soil and remembering and restoring our human nature. So I hope that this episode serves you. And if it really supported you, I invite you to just let us know in a review. It helps other people to find us and access these conversations too. All right, enjoy. Thank you for listening to the Regenerative Mystic Podcast, a podcast about imagining and crafting a more whole world. In these episodes, I'll be sharing conversations with people that I believe have beautiful perspectives, asking questions like, how do we craft futures of wholeness? What does that look like, taste like, feel like? What does it look like in our work, our creative processes, and in our relationships with ourselves and each other, and in the mystery and the myth? How can we craft a vision of the future that can hold all of us? How can we allow wholeness to be centered in our human evolution and global creative processes? I hope that these episodes support you in your own inquiry into these questions. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy. You know, it's definitely been a collective thread, not just a personal thread. Even just noticing what I see in my school, with clients, with students, with friends, it seems to be a collective thread of, there's a lot of grief. And I think that that's come after two years of pandemic reality and of intensity. You know, we didn't, when you're in survival mode and when you're in the frantic panic of it, you don't have time to grieve. And I feel like the last 12 months, it's been a collective grieving because of we were all, you know, in this, whether we were panicked to help or we were panicked because we were being kind of overwhelmed by it in our, in our community and, and we needed help, whatever, wherever we sat in it, it feels like all of us have been in this collective grieving uh, um, of what's, what's dying on a, on a major level within culture, society, relationship, um, spirit, body, you know, earth's roots lineage um so it's definitely very alive for me all of those components are alive and then there's also a part of me that's really um pulsing with how these times of grief and these times of death and change micro macro are asking of us to welcome in a softness and a simplicity and a sweetness to kind of be the remedy for 
the depths that we've gone to and the heaviness that we've carried and have been transmuting and to be to be reclaiming fully our right to be both. You know, I was just I just wrote this beautiful I was sharing spells with my community and one of the spells I wrote, which is very much for myself, but I, I you know, I know that people can benefit from them was um, I'm free to be radically happy and I'm free or wildly happy and I'm free to grieve and that they don't have to be mutually exclusive and to no longer wait until the grief is finished to be happy, you know, because I don't know if that day is ever going to come, especially for those of us who have lost something that can't be replaced, you know, like walking with women through losing children, you know, and losing loved ones. How can you ever say to them, the grief isn't going to be there, you'll be over, you'll get over it, like you're never going to get over it. But how do you walk with it and live with it as a blessing and find the beauty and the simplicity and the sweetness within it and, and choose to be happy despite the grief? Like, I don't know, there's something there for me of, I'm not here to like, bippity boppity boo the grief away. I'm here to like, how do we hold the spectrum of grace and grief and gratitude? So all of those components are really pulsing for me. Mm, I love, I love that. I think, yeah, I'm just sitting with that and it makes so much sense to like, think about it this way, right? To hold both joy and grief in the same palm. I remember years ago when I was going through my divorce and that was my prayer. And, you know, we live in such a world where things are very black and white sometimes, and we don't feel the permission to be fully where we're at because of that. And I think that's a little bit of what you're speaking to is like, you know, there's, it's kind of a melting pot sometimes human life of all of the things. And I'm struck by this idea that that joy, that happiness, that levity isn't an arrival place mm. on the other side of grief. Mm. It's just something that we can experience when there's less to grieve, but it's not it's there's no like ascension ladder to joy and there's and similarly like yes grief is a descent but there's no like you're it's not a regression to to feel and to be able to feel deeply our lives you know what i mean like yeah, yeah i'm i'm especially very struck by that recently going through my own season of grief and the ups and downs of that. Yeah. And to anybody who's really living and not just numbing and no, no, no judgment. We all have our moments of, you know, hopefully it gets to a place of conscious dissociation versus unconscious dissociation, because that can be really useful at times. Um, But if you're really living what you come to realize is it's everything. Like you said, it's a melting pot. It isn't just this or just that, or when I arrive here, or when I arrive there. No, it's part of the dance, you know, and I have had, I speak about this a lot when I talk about death. There is, and it's the same thing because death and grief are sisters. I always teach this from a place of understanding that when we're walking with death, we're also walking with grief and vice versa. Grief is there because there's been loss. 
right? So I talk about this, this idea and this embodied experience that I've had many times, and I'm sure you have without even realizing it, where when you have a, when you like really let go of some grief, like you howl and you purge and you cleanse, there's an ecstasy in that. There's like, if you are, are really paying attention, you feel this like almost orgasmic sense of like relief, like, oh my God, I just let that go. And so how can we actually expand our awareness and our, our, um, our lens to be able to see and feel that there's ecstasy there with us if we allow it, right? It's when we continually repress and continually suppress and continually shelf and continually dissociate we don't allow ourselves to get to that ecstatic point, but there are moments, and, and this is ha- this happens in birth, right? And birth and death are walking in in parallel with one another, right? As a woman is giving birth, she's simultaneously dying, right? Mm-hmm. So there is this this idea of ecstatic birth, and I I believe it is relevant to the ecstatic death. They they're moving parallel and. It's in the kind of surrendering to it, the season, surrendering to the season that you really feel this sense of buoyancy within it, you know, because you're not, you're not clenching your throat closed and your heart closed and you're, you know, and for me, the ecstatic death, the component of the ecstatic death is dying with your heart open. Yeah. Because when we, yeah, you feel it. I mean, I feel it. I'm like, even just talking about it is ecstatic for me because it's in those moments when we're losing something, right, that we want to close our hearts down because we feel like, oh, I can't bear this, right? It's too much. But when you close down your heart, you miss out on the moment of, of, of bliss that is there to really go, oh, my God, I can feel this, right? And, you know, I've been playing with this interesting idea, and I don't actually know if I've told anybody this, so it's going to be fun to share it with you. <laughs> Um, but I have, I've had this moment of really profound realization. So I'm going to ask you a question and, and, you know, for everybody listening, you can ask yourself this question, but you know, when you've hit a threshold, right. With your pain, with pain or grief, and you're like, I can't take it anymore. I feel like I'm going to die. Yeah. I assume you felt that, right. I've I've totally felt that, right? Now now I want you to think about, have you ever had a moment in your life where you've hit such a profound state of bliss that you think to yourself, I could die here. Like I feel complete. Yes. Yes. And I I realized this and, and I thought, wow, like on either end of the spectrum, death is present. Whether it's ecstasy or it's or it's deep suffering and pain. There is, there is, um, we have the capacity to, death is in all of it. It, it, We have the capacity to feel the death in all of it. I've had many of those moments where I thought, you know what, God, like I, I'm so blissed out and happy. Like I could literally be done. Like I feel complete now. Right. And in the same, in the same breath, having those moments of being in so much pain that you think I can't bear it. I need to die. And I just think it's a curious thing, you know, I'm interested to, to hear what it brings up for you, but I think it's a curious thing that if we move beyond polarity and we just look at it as a spectrum and a range, that all of it's present all at once, if we can expand our lens to be, a- to be able to meet that range. Oh. Mm. Yeah. What I'm, and what's, 
like everything that you're saying, like, I just think about, you know, the season I'm in currently where I'm just like, yeah, I, I feel that. And we pathologize our grief in this culture. So like we feel the pain and then we like, Ooh, contract from it. I was like, I, I shouldn't be feeling that deeply or that. We create deeply. story. We create the story around. The narrative about it. Yeah. Mm. And what you're speaking to is like a liberation from all of that. It's, it, you're making it feel so normal to hold pain, to be with grief, the ecstatic death just reaching the ultimate threshold of can I can I really hold the life inside of my body and the pain at the same time that divine friction that we're always meeting up against hmm And what it's bringing up in me is just like this deep desire for us to like a prayer for the world that we would stop pathologizing our grief and give ourselves permission to like truly deeply feel pain and loss, to greet death in a real way, to like greet, greet death. Hmm. Like it's like showing up in me as like, oh yeah. Instead we like pop a pill, like I don't need to feel this pain. Mm. And we just try to feel better immediately. And it's like, you know, I had this experience recently of going all the way into the cut of something, of a pain, of a grief, of a loss. And on the other side of it, I could, I felt like my like whole being was just like, I looked in the mirror and my face was just like lighter somehow. Everything was just Mm. the frequency in my voice changed, Mm. you know? And you know, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I would, I would refer to that as death's renewal. You know, I, I can compare it in a couple of different ways. You know, when you really meet death and you really let her hold your hand and you don't resist it. And I and I see this a lot in my, even just as, as a, a woman with a womb who is going through my cycle each month. I actually, when I'm done, I, I feel like I call it the post-death glow. I look amazing. I'm like, wow, who is that in the mirror, right? Like, what happened to you? You got a facelift. <laughs> and, and I joke because a lot of women don't feel that way about, you know, their bleeds and their, and their cycle. But I, I feel like when I surrender to it and I hold her hand and I'm like, okay, let's do this. Take me under. Let's find the ecstatic point within the, within the release and the pain. It is, it's a renewal of Eros because that's one of death's responsibilities. It's one of death's dharmas, if you will, to renew Eros, it, to renew the Shakti, to renew the life force, to renew the Chi. That's why we see that in, in, our, in nature. We see the way we go through these winter periods in order for things to move into subtle and silent dormancy so that it can be 
regenerated again. And because we've come so far away from that blueprint, we've forgotten what our original story is, what our original truth is. And, and when we're remembering, it's quite confronting because we've spent so many years avoiding death that then holding her hand is like, it feels, it feels scary. And, you know, it's, it's, but I also always know, and I, and I'm in personally in a season of, of, well, coming out of a season of letting go of like just about everything, you know, barring my business, I've pretty much let go of like everything. Um, relationships, homes, stuff. I sold like 80% of my material assets, mm-hmm. you know, uh, community, country, titles, like all the things. Yeah. And I'm not quite through or across the entirety of that journey, but I can, I can feel this powerful, like erotic pulse that is returning that when I come out of the, when I really come out the other end, it's going to be, I'm going to shimmer in a way that I've never shimmered before. And that's one of the reasons why I can continue to, to um, surrender to death because I'm here for the shimmer, baby. I don't want to be, I don't want to be a walking, a walking corpse that just won't let go of something, right? Because we're holding on to something that's rotted. Give the rot back to earth, give the rot back to the mycelium, let it let it um, regrow the beauty of a rose and the beauty of the forest and the plants. Like that's what you get to be if you can give yourself. Otherwise, you're just a rotting log, and it doesn't it doesn't allow for creativity to flow. It doesn't allow for creativity to renew itself. And so, you know, this is one of my um, I feel my personal and professional dharmas is to make death normal again, to make grief normal again, to take it out of the colonial framework that it's been in. <clears throat> And actually look at it for what it truly is, which is it's raw, it's human, it's messy, it's ecstatic, it's, it's, um, it's gritty. It's all of these things that we have the capacity to be with as expressions of nature, but we have become so conditioned out of. But it really is a beautiful process when you can give yourself to it. Oh, when you can give yourself to it, keywords. Yeah. I love... I love that. And and I think about your work as someone who guides people through initiation. This is death work in a mm. sense. A hundred percent. With the living, you know, and it's yes. it's like it doesn't and it and <laughs> there is no option with death other than to surrender. Because we're all, I mean, and and this is like, I say this so I feel like frankly, but we are all going to die physically anyway. Mm-hmm. And the practice of being present with pain and change is the practice of, of death, of completion. Mm-hmm. The practice of letting go and being with life with like loose open palms and an open heart is the practice of death, the practice of letting go, the practice of the final moment of presence. Mm-hmm. Can you share a little bit more about how you see this playing out in like a, a context of initiation? I remember a piece of writing that you shared a couple of weeks ago about, um, yeah, what you would wish to leave younger women, like wisdom of moving through this life, moving through change. And I know that like one of the big things I talk about here in the podcast is like we do live in a culture that 
especially in the West or westernized or colonized cultures where all of our rites of passage and initiation have been flattened and or or erased mm-hmm. and what we're left with is prom and now we can buy cigarettes and mm-hmm. <laughs> now we can travel alone and these aren't actually testing our internal waters and growing our instinctual nature yeah. toward deep whole human adult development mm-hmm. and I'm curious like how this shows up for you in your work especially with initiation and rites of passage and guiding people across these thresholds? You know, I have been that weird kid all my life who contemplated death. (laughs) I remember being very young, you know, like six years old and like looking at the stars and just being like, what the fuck is this? What's happening? And where do I go when I die? And what does that mean? And what happens? And, you know, I, I really have such early memories of it. Maybe it's all my Scorpio placements, but I feel to some degree this connection with death. And it's interesting because I'm not a cold person in the, or a detached person in the sense of like, it doesn't affect me. I'm easily affected. I can walk down the street and see a little girl having a conversation with her grandmother and getting, I can get really emotional. I can cry at just about every movie. I mean, I'm someone who lets life really touch her. So it's not as if like some doctors who sterilize things, you know, and can sort of be with people through the process because they remain separated, I don't experience that. I mean, maybe to a very small extent because I can't, I can't let everything all the time touch me because it would be, it would be wildly overwhelming. Although that can happen sometimes. Um, But I, I stumbled across this work, you know, it wasn't intentional. I always knew I would be doing women's work because it's part of, you know, something I walk with, something I feel karmically responsible to, to fortify. Um, And to make right, like to to make right the relationships that have become distorted. And it happened. It just over, it just, you know, kind of um, organically evolved into, you know, oh, I'm I'm holding a torch for rites of passage because we've lost them. And like you said, we have prom and we have, you know, you can drink now. And and birth even in the in the modern sense hasn't been ritualized or you know, made into what it actually is. So even those moments that we go through that are supposed to be initiate, initiatory, they they aren't because we're missing the components of what initiation mm-hmm. actually is. It has a very specific map, if you will, right? Wow. Um, this understanding that you're leaving behind something. You have to let go of something in order to step into the liminal, the unknown, the void, and that you find your way through that. And on the other end, you're welcomed back and you're celebrated and you're acknowledged for having completed a journey. That's the, you know, the map of initiation in a very, very shortened, you know, bite-sized um, package. And so, you know, people, uh, it's interesting as I go deeper into this work, I, you said something that I've had many conversations with friends about, about how do we hold death while we're still living? Like, what does that actually mean? Because there's so many people especially now with the amount of change that's happening who are going through this and have no idea what they're doing and no idea how to navigate it because the, like you said, the rights have been erased and there's nobody holding space for it. There's nobody welcoming us back. There's nobody wishing us well. There's nobody saying you can do it. It's just like bumbling around in, in, in this kind of immaturity because we haven't had these moments. Like let's talk about 
you know, a girl going through her first menstruation, that's an initiatory moment where she starts to connect with the wisdom that is inherent to her, that belongs to her, that is her inheritance. And when she doesn't have that, what are the things that happen? She has sex with people she doesn't want to have sex with. She doesn't really understand her body. She She's not attuned to the cycles. She's not relating herself to being part of nature. She sees nature as outside of her, right? So she's making all these decisions, even though she's crossed the threshold, she hasn't collected any of her rights, any of her wisdom, right? right? Which is in part the job of the elders or those who are holding the torch, the keepers of the keys to support her or him in. So, and I think, you know, on a personal level, I didn't have a lot of eldership in my life. You know, my... My grandparents were all dead by the time I was like 21. My grandmothers were dead by the time I was 13. And, you know, I think losing grandparents and having such a, I come from a family where estrangement and dismemberment is so, is so prevalent. Nobody is able to talk to anybody else. Nobody's able to resolve anything. Everybody sits in their corners and doesn't know how to, how to, how to create resolution, how to be in, how to be in conscious relationship to conflict and to death and to evolution. And so I think I realized at some point, I guess I'm going to have to become an elder, you know, because, and not that I'm an elder in this moment, but that every choice that I'm making in this as, as a young woman, I'm doing because when I get to 50, 60, 70, 80, I would like to be able to share that wisdom to support other human beings who deserve that. And as I've gotten older and I've gotten more creative about the ways in which I invoke eldership because it's not coming from my bloodline anymore. Um, They changed, they've changed me without that eldership, without that counsel. I wouldn't be here having this conversation with you. And I, I give myself credit because I've, I've made hard choices, but at the same time I've had, I later in life, I was, I guess, wise enough to realize I'm not going to make it through if I don't have this. Right. So now I really feel devoted to restoring that, restoring those the lineage of what we would say in like, you know, the feminine oral, the feminine oral tradition of passing down wisdom, of passing down mythology, of passing down stories, of passing down, you know, treasures and gems and, you know, this constellation of tools that we don't get when we're going through our journey as kids in this world, because our parents miss that. Our parents miss the initiation. Most of them, those, those, those last few generations, they didn't get it, right? And this colonial kind of massacre of rites of passage work and of anything that isn't, you know, isn't linear, kind of clinical, um, pharmaceutical, logical, you know, whatever, is it's been cast out as witchcraft or useless or, you know, whatever. And so to bring back these lost parts, and I feel like a lot of what I do is like, it's like an archaeologist, I'm helping people to find these bones that that have been buried. And it's like the bones of a language that we've lost, that when we put it all together, we, we, we string back a language that actually helps us to create a life that we were born to create, because language creates reality. Language creates um and, you know, culture creates language and language creates culture. And women have always historically been at the center of that. They've been the ones creating the social systems, creating the language, 
um, yes. you know, holding down the circles of, of, of education in, in various different forms. And so I feel like I'm often, you know, like an archaeologist helping women to pull that together so that they, they then can speak from a place of empowerment and certainty because they're using a language that's actually theirs and not one that's been given to them in a manual that was built for, for robots and, and mechanized instead of humanized. Like it's getting back our human, you know, natural, original language. And part of that language is death. How do we, how do we engage with it? How do we, how do we speak with death? How do we commune with death? How do we, how do we feel comfortable in death's presence? How do we take something that feels so negative based in the lens of colonial colonialism that mm-hmm. takes that looks so negative and actually, you know, reframe it and see it for what it is as a gift. We need it. We need death. Death is an ally to life. Mm-hmm. And without death, we everything gets lopsided. So, you know, it's, it's a, I, I am a death doula in many ways. And, um, but death while we're living, right? Like holding the death of selves, the selves that will die many, many times over, relationships that die, careers that die, um, dreams that die. Like I think that we went through a collective dream death through the pandemic because we all had these well laid out plans and then, then the whole system just shat on that. And we were all like, shit, all these dreams that I had are now not that they can't be reborn into something else, but I really lost touch with my dreams when during that time because I felt like there was a cap. Suddenly there was a cap and a ceiling and there was so much limitation and there was so much lockdown and there was so much, and not just physical lockdown, lockdown of consciousness, lockdown of, of thoughts and ideas and all of the different things. And so we really all went through this death of the dream and how are now coming out the other end going, what's the new dream, right? Yeah. That that we had to let go of the old one, but what's the new dream? So, you know, it is, it's threshold work. It's, it's about how do we hold ourselves on the threshold between two worlds? How do we get comfortable with the liminal and not just bear it, but actually find a rhythm in the liminal? Because it's, it's when you don't know that language and you don't know the choreography and the dance, it's really can be disorienting. But when you know it and you know that it's going to be okay, you can surrender to that that rhythm of liminality and the in-between and the void, it's like, whoa, okay, I can be here. It's safe for me to be here. And it's not just safe, but it's actually, it's, it's, it's necessary for me to be here and not I have to be somewhere else that's more concrete, which is very colonial. If you, if you can't see it, it doesn't exist, right? So we're talking about all the unseen and giving it language and verbiage and and feeling and we're giving it permission and that in and of itself is like revolutionary in a world that just does not know or or uh, exalt the liminal and the in-between and the transition yeah 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 it's first it's so refreshing to talk to you um like several there have been several moments throughout what you've shared where I've just been like yeah Thank you for saying that. Thank mm. you for thank you for speaking what I feel like I see, but like I don't know. I being in a world where sometimes like death is so final and death is so like harrowing and and we are not friends to death and like mm. and there's no like like I look around and there's no flexibility with change and I'm like 
don't you see, right, that there's like all of this space in between the last breath and the first one that wants to be played with. It's, it's like a soil that wants to be sown with seed. Mm-hmm. And the way that you speak to that, it like really brings that memory alive for me again and again and again. It's something I have to remember. It's something I write about because like, I'm like, I have to remember this. I have to remember this in my body because if I allow the world to be like sort of a mirror for this ancient truth, this primordial wisdom, I'll forget. I'll forget that death is change is change is change change is evolution change is like initiation is not like you know this like I'm gonna go to college and I'm gonna do exactly everything as I imagined it everything I planned out on the white paper everything I put on my list is gonna happen exactly the way I want it to and instead we get to learn how to be in a relationship with time and we get to learn how to be in a relationship with change and a relationship with death and a relationship with evolution. Like this, this relational piece that's been missing for so long. So I don't know if any of that made any sense. Cause I'm like, Oh, Absolutely. it's so refreshing to just yeah. hear you speak into this. So articulately. I've spent yeah. a lot of time with death. <laughs> <laughs> We've had a lot of tea parties, <laughs> so, you know, and, and it's also for me been a form of at least initially like survival. Like how do I, how do I meet the reality, you know, of, of this is part of life. And I, I, li- I try to live my life from a place of not letting my fear control you know my my power like keeping death over here out here in a place where I don't have to look at it it has control over me then and I don't want death to have control over me in that way right I don't want to feel like it's strangling me my avoidance of death is actually subtly strangling me because I won't make friends with it you know so it's been a it's been a journey for me of really finding peace with it and um you know we don't live in a world that knows how to hold grief and how to hold death like I you know I feel really sad that even the funerals that we have from this kind of colonial lens it's so polite and it's so like generic Mm. and so like without heart without soul and you feel like come on guys, like death death is asking you to come to your knees and to cry and to sing and to snarl and to let yourself be taken by it together. You know, this is what all the indigenous cultures knew is you hold, you hold grief and you hold death in community. You have these wailing circles and these grieving circles. You know, one of my teachers um, in Australia, she does a lot of work with the indigenous out there. And she was telling me that a lot of the elders have recently passed and they were doing, um, they were doing ritual, you know, to say goodbye and, you know, their form of funeral. And she was like, the grieving, the grieving circles go for weeks, weeks and weeks they go. They just let you grieve. And, and in that, like we were talking about, because we're giving ourselves to it and because we're sharing it and not holding it in, 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 um, solitary confinement, we can access the ecstatic moment. 
right? When we all are grieving and howling and wailing and purging, and then we stop afterward and we look around and we go, oh, I feel better now, right? And we're together and we're doing it together. And that to me is, that's what death and grief demands, but we don't give it that. We're like, okay, you take a week off and you do your one-off funeral and you, you know, you know, try to blow your nose quietly in the church, but like, God forbid, you get a bit wild with it and a bit ugly and a bit, you know, feral and primal, but like, you have to get primal. You, if you don't, you stop the process from completing itself, which is what initiation is. You have to complete the initiation. And if you disrupt it by not, by not allowing, your, not really giving yourself to it, then you haven't completed the process and you're going to stay in that process until you do. It's going to follow you until you do. And that's what I think a lot of the world is operating from, Un, unprocessed grief that they don't know how to complete because we don't live in a world that has taught us what it means to get into the primal grittiness of that uh, of grief and of death mm. yes you're speaking <laughs> <to> so- <laughs> yes <laughs> oh you're speaking to so many so so many things so much juice here especially like the piece around being stuck like we're not completing the process when we don't give ourselves to it mm. when we don't give our full bodies our full presence to the process of of grief which is also change, death, initiation. And we stay stuck. I mean, one of my favorite writers right now is Bill Plotkin. He talks about this um, in his book, Nature and the Human Soul, and how we stay, like we are as a world pathologically adolescent yes. because we haven't, we, we, we don't as many, many, many cultures, there's not a culture on, on the world who hasn't in some way been touched even a little bit by the resistance to deep change. And, and like, you know, even if they, like this, uh, the culture hasn't like themselves, like surrendered their ways and their rights to colonialism, just being observed by the world as like primal, right. Mm-hmm. And that being a negative thing, quote unquote, and like being, you know, regressed yet mm-hmm. the ones who was observing that ritual. Like I think about the first time I watched Midsummer, I was like, oh shit. Mm-hmm. Like they just have you seen that movie? No, but I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I haven't seen it. I, Should I see it? I, yeah. <laughs> I think you would have a lot of like insight. Um or just like there's probably a lot to reflect upon just based on what you're talking about there. Mm-hmm. But it's about this like community who lives in the mountains who have kept their old rites of passage. Um, I think it's like this Swedish community. I could be getting it wrong. It's somewhere over there across the seas. And <laughs> this like couple, they go and visit uh, like this guy's family, um, one of the classmates or whatever. And the way that they work with grief and death, like at the end of life, the elders are, uh, they jump off of a cliff. Wow. They surrender completely to, de- to death. And then like someone comes and completes the process, mm-hmm. which is kind of a gruesome scene. It's like really shocking. <laughs> so I hope you don't mind a little spoiler. <laughs> it was more like a warning for you. <laughs> Thank if you. If you watch the movie, that's going to be in there because it, it, it just yeah. jumps on you real quick. 
Um, but then like also there are these, these other scenes where they're like, they are in dance together as this community mm-hmm. and they're celebrating um, consummation and courtship and love and birth and death. Like when death happens, the whole community of women gather around one person and just weave and weep together. They just, mm-hmm. they weave their arms together and they weep. And I'm like, that how, like, why does this feel like something I want and something that's so foreign from our modern cultural westernized imaginations, mine at the very least, like, yeah, can, is that even possible? Mm -hmm. And like the healing and the completion that takes place in all of that, going all the way into pain going all the way into death going all the way into grief even as adolescents right like Mm. going all the way into the gravity of what it means to have your first bleed um and I remember feeling so much shame I thought I was dying because no one talked Mm. to me about it the first time I bled I thought I was literally dying Mm. and and it you know, and I'm sad because it wasn't met with this like level of like celebration as well as gravity. It was just like, oh, well now you, your body's ready to have children, but you're not ready to have children. Here's a pad, right? Like, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. for, the, like for the, the rest of the week, I was like afraid to like mm. be in my body, afraid to sit down. Cause I was like, mm. I'm bleeding. Like, this is so strange. This is weird. I don't, I don't know how to do this. Mm. Um, as an 11 year old. Right. And I just think about like our first loves or being in relationship even. Um, and that's something that I've been reflecting on recently too, of like, so many of us don't know how to be in relationship at all. We don't know how to be in partnership. We don't know how to like hold change in relationship within the relationship, which is why so many relationships break off. Like they, we don't know how to hold the conflict or the change or the evolution or to hold each other in it. Um, and that resilience that comes with initiation is just missing mm-hmm. that capacity to fully resolve things and fully greet death mm-hmm. is just missing. Mm-hmm. So I'm, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm like, yeah, like this is just stirring up a deep prayer in my heart. Like I just want to do like big spell work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like I there's a part there's a fixer in me that's like I just want to change it all, mm. but I cannot do it on my own. I can't. I can't. This is a this is a thing that we as people as a collective as humans get to see again um, and remember how to do on the other side of so much change. It's communal. It's communal. There's an acceptance in that. Yeah. You know, and there's something profound that happens when everybody in the room has permission, you know, like they, they can really hold the nuance and complexity and, duality of life, right? What we were talking about earlier about this grace, grief, gratitude spectrum, or this, you know, death being present in the bliss and death being present in the suffering. Um, and so I'm, I'm with you, you know, I'm holding the same prayer that we return to this more 
communal and primal way of being. And I make choices in my life to endeavor to get there, endeavor to rebuild that with, with the choices and the way that I'm investing my money and who and what I'm investing my money into and where I'm placing my attention and awareness and who I'm choosing to work with because there's only so much energy and time for me, for all of us, to be putting our hearts into projects. And if they're projects that aren't really actually in alignment with these deeper desires for me of holding the, these kinds of things, I don't really want to do it. I don't really have the, I don't have any desire to kind of stay in this surface level place. Um, and, and my hope is that in the work that I do, you know, I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm providing more templates and maps and inspiration to meet death and grief with a very different perspective and to find, you know, sometimes the most profound moments of my life. It's funny. It's so funny when you think about it, but like, some of the most profoundly miraculous moments of my life where the awe is just like off the charts, right? Yeah. Has, has been in those moments where I'm meeting the grief or I'm meeting the death and I'm not resisting it anymore. It's like these all-inspiring, deeply, you know, God-embodied experiences yeah. where I'm like, holy shit, you know, this is like, wow, I, I know something now that I didn't know before and it's changed everything now. My and, you know, they, they always say the capacity to, to be able to hold more of the grief yeah. expands your capacity for joy. It expands your capacity. If you're really feeling it, I'm not talking about most of the world that is walking around in an orbit of grief, but they're not acknowledging it. That's very, very different, right? You know, it's like a bubble of grief and yet they're completely dissociating from it. Right. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those of us who are really meeting it and feeling it and sitting at our altars and crying, are in yeah. the soil and howling, are sharing our ugliest moments with people that we trust, like that kind of commitment, you know, that we are expanding collectively our ability to embody joy. And as one end of the spectrum expands, the other end of the spectrum expands. And that's one of the most beautiful parts of the whole journey is all of my teachers from all of my lineages have said to some extent that those exact words, which is your ability to expand into the darkness is your ability to hold more light. Your ability to open your heart to the grief is your ability to open your heart to more love, right? It's this, it's inextricably connected and... And I, I would rather, you know, and I've been through some shit, right? Like we, we, you and I both know what it's like, right? Like we, you know, right. I don't know all your story, but I can see when someone's in front of me who's been through some shit, right? right. <laughs> I say that with love, yeah? Um, yes, yes. With admiration, but I've been through some shit and I, and I, it's funny, I've had many conversations with myself and I've asked myself, would you rather be somebody else? Would you rather have gotten somebody else's cards? And it's interesting when I actually pause to ask the question to myself, the fantasy dissolves and I'm like, no, oh, yeah. I want to oh, be yeah. me. I want to be me. I, I, I choose this, you know, and, and we don't, we do not get whatever this even means, get there. We do not, we do not get there alone. We, we are communal, social, integrated interdependent beings and um, bringing back the relational rights. I mean, that's like a whole other conversation, but 
the relational rights, right? It's like, how the fuck do we actually exist in relationship with one another? Mm-hmm. How do we how do we start to language and meet edges and meet thresholds that are uncomfortable and and you know hold space for nuance within the relationship, hold space for duality and complexity and um, and humanness and all of this stuff and let it evolve us and let it like a like a river is softening or you know softening the edges of a rock. How do we let that soften us and carve out new shapes within us? Um, and that's, we all, because we have our own intimacy wounds and our abandonment wounds, because we were, most of us brought up by uninitiated people, you know, an uninitiated society. Let's forget about the parents for a second. Just talk about uninitiated society, culture, yeah, culture, teachers, educational institutions, right? It's like, because we've been raised by that we got shitloads of relational wounds, right? And then we're trying to create relationship, but we're actually not because we don't know how most of us to hold the nuance of relationship. Whatever we're having isn't really a proper relationship, right? But we're, we're, we want to have it and yet we don't want to have it because it means that we have to face the parts in ourselves that have been wounded by being raised by a culture that's been uninitiated and then taking responsibility for how then we have to play a role in in resolving that, not taking it on our backs as, you know, I'm the single, single-handedly gonna change us all, but like, what is my piece here? What am I responsible for? If I'm gonna raise children, if I'm gonna be a mother, what's my role in 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 reconciling my shit so that I can ch- change the change the flow of the river for my daughter or my son, um, yes. or my clients and my students or my friends, and, you know, whoever it is that is in deep intimate relationship with us. You know, so there's a there's a lot of there is a lot of uh, of work to be done, and I'm also <laughs> I'm also getting to a place in my journey where I, I feel like there's a lot of quote unquote work that can be done from softness, from prayer, from subtlety, from sitting at my altar and visioning it, and not just you know extracting and and forcing and excavating the wounds and the pain, but like what if I just sat here in silence and held held a prayer in my heart and held a vision in my mind and did that day after day after day after day. What would, what could that do? You know? Oh, amen. Oh, Mm. yeah. I'm, I'm feeling especially like, I'm feeling especially drawn to the subtle, especially drawn to the subtle because excavating wounds, digging into wounds. Um, that is, that's one way to go about it, but I don't know if that's, <laughs> that way is for me. You know, one of the biggest prayers that I've had, I've been washing myself over with, um, especially even the last week is, um, it's a prayer of returning my returning myself back to softness, right? And it's through like, you know, I was talking about this with my mom this morning in a really beautiful breakthrough conversation of just like releasing these epigenetic codes of cruelty that we learn from our culture, that we learn love through punishment, through a denial of our humanness through a denial of time and space through a denial of 
you know, mm-hmm. the pain through a pathologization of the deep pain. It's gaslighting to tell someone, oh, you lost your child, you lost your partner, you lost the love of your life, you lost your home, you lost your car. You get one day and one gangster tear. Um, mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're going to lose your job. Otherwise, you're going to lose your mm-hmm. community because, you know, that's, you know, our community can only be here for so much pain. And that's usually an afternoon of tea. And then, like, it's ghosted text messages from there, right? It's like, geez, like, mm-hmm. I. My prayer, it, like, and I, I continue to wash it over and over and over and over and over again, is that we would unlearn these ways of being with each other, and we would release even the subtle cruelties of like gaslighting pain and grief and death, and and pathologizing these aspects of ourselves. And, you know, somebody is going through pain and they're wailing. Oh, they need to go to their, let's get them to the mental hospital. Their crap is like, no, they are in pain. Mm -hmm. They are in so much pain that they cannot physically hold it, Mm -hmm. right? Like you can't fix that with a pill. You can't fix that with, you know, a visit to the local hospital. You can't fix that. Mm -hmm. It has to be held. It has to be woven through time. It has to be met. It has to be met. And yeah, so I'm just like, I'm here with the prayer and all of this and so thankful that you are someone in the world who is holding it too, holding this prayer for what does it look like holding this practical prophecy of like, what does it look like for us to reclaim this relationship with death and change and evolution and initiation and grief? And it's taking it out of, um, <clears throat> it's taking it out of institutions and, and back into the people. You know, in the last 12 months, I really learned this in a multitude of ways. The first was when I was living in Australia last year and we had two back-to-back floods and the government didn't come. Nobody came. The army didn't come for a week. And we're talking like entire villages swept away. We're talking about people losing everything. We're talking about cars destroyed, houses destroyed, people being rescued on boats. Like it was insane. And when we all, when the water finally left and we all left our houses, it was just a mess. The whole, all of the villages in the area were a mess. Everything was covered in toxic mud and people were in survival and panic in complete shock. And it was the people who gathered together, who created a recreation center, a volunteer center. And I I could cry just thinking about it because I've never seen people assemble in such a powerful way for each other and offer everything they have to strangers in their community. If someone needed a carpenter, if someone needed a boat, if somebody, people were, 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 were sending out their helicopters to do rescue missions in the, in the, in the, in the mountain because people were stuck and locked in the mountains and there were landslides and people were just sending out their, 
their helicopters because there was no army helicopter. There was no government helicopters. There were no rescuers coming for a week. Like, can you imagine? And I, I just felt, I mean, it's taken me a long time to realize how traumatic that was and to also recognize that witnessing the grace of it as well, right back to the spectrum, like it was so incredibly beautiful to see what community can do completely on their own. Amen. Like what happened, it was a miracle. I mean, it was the most touching, you know, and everything was wiped out. Like we had no Wi-Fi, nobody could go to work. Like everything went out the window, all the normal colonial capitalistic realities that we live in, it was gone. It was like, who needs what? Who needs a coffee? Who needs a back rub? People giving away their services for free, massage therapists, therapists, Reiki healers. Everybody was like, who can I help and how can I be there? And what do I, how do I mobilize my heart, right? How do I mobilize my heart for my people, for my community? And that was profound. It was like life-changing for me. And several months later, I had the pleasure of witnessing a similar thing unfold where two people in my community, in my very close community, um, were dealing with you know, challenging family relationships in terms of like mother and a father and, and a child and there being a need for mediation because, you know, the mother and the father couldn't reconcile with it. And instead of going to the courts, instead of taking it to the legal system, they asked their closest counsel, their what? teachers, their friends. And we literally sat in circle and held the complexity, held yes. the nuance found ways to be loving, even if there was trigger, even if you wanted to punch someone in the face, even if you disagreed with somebody, there was, there was a desire and intention to be in right relationship and to do it for the benefit of the family. Right. Because again, like I think back to like the, the African tribes and, you know, um, Maladoma Somme talks a lot about mm -hmm. this, about, you know, one, an individual, when an individual is sick, the whole community is sick. Yeah, there's no separation because we're all part of we're all part of it, right? So when a family is going through grief, the village and the community is not separate from that. When a family is going through a death, when a family is going through a crisis, we are not separate. So how do we hold it together so we can all liberate ourselves together and bring back, you know, a harmonic resonance, but mm -hmm. avoiding it and pretending that it doesn't exist because it's an inconvenience doesn't allow us to to sit in right relationship. And so we we sat for weeks in mediation together. And we did different sessions and we had conversations and it was hard, man. It was hard and confusing though. Yeah. Like you're saying this, you're like, this is what we did. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> this is amazing. This is like a miracle. Yeah, it was. It was a miracle and it was, you know, it was beautiful and it was gritty and it was real. And we were all just like in real we were sharing our stories. Mothers were sharing stories about, you know, their, their wisdom. Fathers were sharing stories about their regret. And it was all relevant to this family and their needs and their, their troubles and their challenges. And, and it was powerful. It was those two, those two experiences back to back for me were life-changing experiences of, of remapping, retemplating what, taking it out of the institution, like you were talking about the psych ward or, or the government or, you know, the university or the whatever. And like, you know, give re redistributing the power back to the community and to the village, because we, we are 
ultimately we all want to live in harmony with one another and we all want to serve one another as best we can. And so holding this nuance together through crisis, through grief, through shock, through transition, I mean, it was, it was a transformational moment. I'm still integrating that. That happened like a year ago. It was like January to April last year between the floods and then, you know, this other, this other experience. It was, it was, wow. It was, it was, it really gave me a new perspective on what's possible and reseeded the belief that we can do it little by little. So powerful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Just like, just even <laughs> you're taking it out of my imagination mm. right now. And you're like, you sharing these stories of like, true deep communal healing and that this is possible. This isn't just something that we made up. This isn't just something that we're pulling out of the history that we all have, you know, in our own like, like, you know, individual cultural indigenous like landscape, but like this is so present and such a reality. It's been a reality for you. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel inspired and hopeful that it would be a reality for me. Um, and in my community and um, in my sort of network of friendships where, you know, we're, we're looking at how do we step into the next five years? You know, some of us are wanting to have children and be sort of rooted and settled and be real families. And it's terrifying that we're all, you know, in our 30s or coming up on it. And we're like don't know what to do, don't know a single effing thing about any of this. I feel like a 10-year-old in the big grown-up shoes when it comes Mm -hmm. to being in community in a real way Mm -hmm. and being with my grief and my pain in a real way without trying to escape or leave or dismiss it. being with like the challenge of these initiations in a real way and going all the way into it, wanting every step of the way to like exit and, and like (laughs) end the life force. So you don't have to feel it, but knowing that it's like, you know, we call again, pathologizing that we're like, yeah, I've had suicidal thoughts before and like not to minimize that at all, but I'm like, yeah, yeah. 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 That's yeah. normal, yeah. actually. And like if we normalized that, if we normalized and, and looked at and restoried our relationship with the life, mm. death, life presence that shows up mm. to greet us at every single moment, mm. might we have a dying chance at being able to move through these things successfully, mm. coherently, gracefully. Co- yeah, gracefully. Mm. You know, yeah, it's the shame. It's the pathology creates the shame, which actually is the thing that does us in. You know what I mean? Because if we normalize these things that are part of being human, then we remove the, the biggest component for people being in a chronic state of fill in the blank, right? Because the shame is actually what's causing the issue more than the thing itself. That's more deadly, more dangerous than any of it. And 
the wronging of it. This is wrong. I'm wrong, right? That is what actually does us in. And if we remove the pathology, it changes the whole thing. Changes the whole thing. Yeah. Agreed. Well, on that note, I'm, I think that feels like a really good place to like land and remember that. You know, I, I know that so many people are going to listen to this podcast and be like, wow, yeah, you're saying the things that I have been feeling and, and sensing and haven't been able to put language to for a really long time because the only place it's mirrored is in the earth. And, you know, when you have that kind of relationship with the earth, even that can be pathologized or put in a box. And so I just want to thank you for just say, saying what feels true, saying what feels like what this, like the medicine this moment needs, mm. um, which is, yeah, death is here, change is here, mm. evolution is here, and we're going we're gonna to walk through this with our whole spirit intact, and mm. that's possible. And I think that that is like a hope. I know that like you and I both sit with these things every single day, but I know many, many people have never held that fully, that truth that we're going to walk through this and we're going to be okay. Mm. And we're going to grow through these things and we're going to regain composure, not through ignoring and dismissing and X, Y, and Z, but, but by going all the way in to the ecstatic dance of death. And, and life. Mm. So, so I want to leave it there. And um, as a final question, I want to invite you to just share anything that you're up to um, here in the next couple of seasons and how people can tune into your work mm. and learn more about these, this rite of passage work that you do, this initiation and change work, ceremony work that you do. Well, thank you so much for having me. First of all, it's it's always such a pleasure to bring our minds together and our hearts together and to be in a space of boundlessness, to have conversation that doesn't have boundary in that way that we can explore, you know, with curious, innocent eyes and remember, you know, so thank you for, for inviting me. It was really beautiful. Um, and in terms of what I'm up to, y'all, I'm not up to a lot. <laughs> I am in such a season of like, let me just write my poetry and sit with my tea. <laughs> um, you know, and I say that with, um, there are, you know, there are projects in the works, but I've been in a very slow season, honestly. And it's been beautiful because for the last couple of years, it was like service, 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 you know, and it was, it was great but now I'm in a really deep moment of renewal and self-service and um and so I'm not really sure I actually have literally in this moment I, I don't have any upcoming public stuff on the on the officially on the calendar there's a lot of dream seeds and things kind of sitting in the liminal that I haven't quite put my hand up and said yes I'm gonna do this um and you know I'm here we're both here in winter and I'm really just honoring the deep presence of winter right now and, and really being mindful of how I'm using my energy. So for now, you know, you can keep an eye out for, um, for workshops that will be coming and, you know, we'll be opening up some new rite of passage work at some point soon, but my real deep 
holding right now is like, can we, can I be an embodiment of stillness and deep, deep presence um, as my gift to humanity instead of, you know, providing more services? Can I just let my, my beingness be the service right now? And, um, but come and follow and hang out in the, the community. You can find me at She Heals Co on Instagram. And there's always, you know, lots of poetry and story there. And, um, and that's where all of our up-to-date stuff is. And so I can send, I'm sure I, you can link it up in the notes and those kinds of things, but come say hello. Let, let me know how you experience these, um, these words of ours. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, I will make sure to link all of the links in the show notes so that folks can find you. Um, and with that, thank you so much, Alexis, for this time, for sharing your heart and your wisdom. And it's, yeah, my gratitude is beyond words. Just so thankful. Likewise. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Regenerative Mystic Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Kin Spirit, an emergent spiritual collective of creatives and dreamers who are dedicated to the work of bridging the gap between the everyday and the sacred and storying our way through great change. Your listenership means the world to us. So if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider adding an honest rating and a written review so that more people can find the conversations we're holding. In between episodes, you can find us on social media at The Regenerative Mystic, Ken Spirit, and you can find me, your resident story doula, at www.thestorydoula.co. Until next time, see you later.